0: Good morning, everyone. We want to start our remarks by looking at an incident that occurs in Luke chapter 7. So we're starting in Luke chapter 7. We've been emphasizing all the way through that. Our Lord has an incredible passion to save people for the kingdom. And the great secret to his success is the incredible compassion and tenderness that the Lord had. Yes, of course, this tenderness and compassion caused the Lord to want to relieve the immediate suffering. Yet his bigger issue, perhaps is getting people to avoid the greatest suffering and the greatest sorrow is if they missed out on the kingdom. So that's the main thing driving the Lord Jesus Christ. And that incredible compassion the Lord had was the great key to winning people over for the kingdom. And so therefore, we're going to focus on the Lord's compassion seen on three occasions to those who perhaps feel the greatest sorrow people who have lost a child or a family member. The story starts in verse 11. It's the day after. It's the day after the Lord gives life to the centurion's servant who undoubtedly would have died. And you see here in verse 11 that the Lord Jesus Christ is making his way to a city, a little village called Nain in the beautiful Jezreel Valley. And it says there are many disciples but also... Much people. It's telling us that the Lord is leading a group of very, very happy people, a large group of very happy people. That includes the newly appointed 12 disciples. And it says in verse 12 that he approaches the gate of the city. And when he gets there, there's the Lord Jesus Christ at the head of a very large group. And they've got to stop because there's another large group are leaving the city and you couldn't get a greater contrast between these two groups. The group with the Lord are incredibly happy, they're rejoicing but the other group instantly you know it is a funeral, a funeral procession led by this grief stricken woman. There is at least one professional mourner and at least two flute players and it was the custom that women who brought death into the world should lead the procession. And she has a funeral procession, it says in verse 12, for her only son. And literally verse 12 should be the only begotten. So with one group you've got the only begotten and he is dead and the only begotten is with the other group who are trying to come into the city who is the Lord of life and her boy is lying cold, stiff and straight on this open coffin. The mother was devastated because it's all she has for support and companionship and joy into her old age. Can you picture what's going through this poor woman's mind? Her son hasn't been dead in relative terms all that long and she dreads the moment that lay ahead. Yes, her son is dead, but at least she has the body there to remember him And now it is the worst time in her life where her beloved son's body is going to be buried out of sight forever. She's got friends and relatives and people she knows who are trying to comfort her, but what can they really do? Of course they can mourn with her, they can sympathise with her, but in reality they are totally inadequate to really comfort her. And verse 13, as soon as the Lord, instantly the Lord has compassion. That word compassion is a very strong word. His bowels yearned. It is the strongest of all the Greek words for compassion. The feeling he has comes from deep, deep down in his being and do you know, brothers and sisters, this word is only used of the Lord in the Gospels. It's as if... He is the only one who is capable of such deep compassion. And if he saw anyone in trouble, he was always moved with compassion and that compassion always drove him to do something. And as we said before, that's the great key to his success. People came to know this. So many people actually experienced them in their own family circle and it was a great motivator to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. And so the Lord takes the whole scene in at a glance. He gently steps forward. He could not help but be moved by her weeping. And he says to the woman, weep not. The woman looks up through her tears, absolutely amazed. Why shouldn't I weep? And brothers and sisters, we would not blame this poor woman if she was not angry. Who do you know what you're talking about? You're a complete stranger, you've got no idea. Her, his words would appear insensitive, blurted out. And then the Lord intrudes on the procession and touches the bier. Brothers and sisters, it would be as if we would have a funeral procession and we stop the funeral procession at a zebra crossing. Is that what you call a pedestrian crossing? You stop the hearse, do you call them hearses? And you go to the back of the hearse and you open the back of the hearse and you then open the coffin, do you call them coffins? And then you actually touch the dead body. If that happened to your funeral, if a a stranger did that, you would be absolutely horrified. And that's exactly what the Lord does here in verse 14. And when that happens, can we blame the men who bear it standing still? They froze. And there is silence. I believe the flute player would have stopped his noise. The mourners would have stopped their mourning. And to this woman, what the Lord did was absolutely disgusting and abhorrent. He's touching my dead boy. And then it gets worse. He talks to my dead boy. She expects the Lord to speak with the voice of a madman. But no, it's the voice of authority, but still filled with compassion. Young man... I say unto you, arise. The woman is looking at the coffin and all of a sudden, the sheet that was covering her boy starts to move. It falls off and she cannot believe it that when the linen cover falls off, her boy stands up, sits up and starts to speak. And he delivered in verse 15 him to his mother. The mother, her, her, her attitude just changes in an instant. She's outraged, she's upset, and now she is overcome by tears of sheer delight and joy. All oh, this is a very, very important miracle. It is the first resurrection that the Lord has carried out. But despite the fact it's such an amazing miracle, this boy is raised without this woman having any faith at all. There is only one reason this boy is resurrected and it's in verse 13 and it's worth highlighting, the Lord had compassion. What is being highlighted here is that very early on in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, you would want to follow this person. You would want to be like him filled with compassion for others and he is filled with compassion for you. Brothers and sisters, why would we not want to serve our Lord with our whole hearts? The next is Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5. How does the Lord deal with her? If there is one thing I would write above Mark chapter 5, it is empathy. What's empathy? We asked this question before. What is empathy? Exactly. By putting you in their place and then when you are in their place, you think what they think, but you feel what they are feeling. Now, when the Lord does that here, it causes him to have even greater compassion. So that's the first thing, he has compassion but also he is getting people ready for the kingdom and that's exactly what he's trying to do with Jairus, drag him along in faith. Yes, he's going to heal his daughter but he's trying to turn Jairus around and get him ready for the kingdom. We're halfway through that full second year in Galilee where there are thousands of people following him. And Verse 21 He comes from the other side of Galilee and when he gets there, the NEB translates it, you could hardly breathe for the crowds. And verse 22, behold. There's something unusual. This time in the crowd is Jairus, the chief ruler of the synagogue normally cold, aloof, not wanting to touch the common people. And he comes before the Lord Jesus Christ and fell down at his feet, bowing before him, worshipping the the Lord. But he's got to come to worship the Lord, not as a healer, but as the one who he truly is. And in verse 23, he besought him greatly. This man's desperate. His little girl is about to die. You know, I am amazed at this ruler. He knew the Lord could heal. He'd seen that over and over again. The record we read in Luke chapter 7 of the healing of the centurion's servant, the deputation who went to the centurion included this man. And this man had seen miracle after miracle after miracle in his synagogue. But he doesn't come to the Lord until his little girl is at the point of death. It's highlighting something. Yes, he's called Jairus a couple of times, but the rest of the time he is called the ruler of the synagogue. And the Lord is emphasizing you've got to get rid of the belief in the law, but more importantly, you've got to get rid of that uncompassionate attitude that the synagogue system has. You've got to see the greatness of the Lord. You've got to see the greatness of his compassion and that's starting to occur and sometimes a tragedy is needed before people will change and that is the same here with Jairus. And according to the scholars in verse 23... It's filled with broken words that are interrupted by bursts of grief. He's desperate. He's repeating himself. The sentences are disjointed, just like the current speaker. And he besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she might be healed and that she might live. She's at the point of death. Lord, I'm worried that every breath this poor little girl takes is going to be her last. She's in pain, just breathing. And I'm watching every breath. Is she going to take another one? Yes. But Lord, I don't know how much longer she can keep on going. Please, Lord, heal her. And the Lord, in verse 24, went with him. Jairus leads the way, but the people are thronging him. They're pressing in on all sides in verse 24 and Jairus has got a clearer path and he looks behind. Yes, the Lord is coming with me and it says that he is troubling the Lord in verse 35. He is driving the Lord, flaying the Lord. Lord, keep moving, keep moving. And finally he gets the Lord moving and he goes on ahead. He's walking on ahead and then he senses the Lord is not with me. He turns around and there is the Lord back there in the distance. What are you doing? And he rushes back and he sees this poor bent woman trembling with fear and he looks at this woman and he says, you're stopping my daughter from being healed. You'll cause my daughter to die. And he hears the Lord just as he comes on the scene. He hears the Lord say, verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you whole. And as soon as he hears that, there's a tap on his shoulder. He looks around, what's up? Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble Jesus anymore. And the Lord looks into the eyes of Jairus that dull with this sudden devastating grief. And the Lord knows that this is a critical moment for Jairus. He had started to believe the Lord could heal. And so he says in verse 36, Keep on believing. There's nowhere near enough faith in this man to believe that the Lord and resurrect his daughter. And he says to the rest of the disciples, you stay here, you stop the crowd, and look what verse 39 says. And he came in. Realize what that verse is saying? It's not the funeral. And the family has had no time to compose themselves. The Lord walks straight through the front door of a home And a family who has only just found out their little girl is dead. There is the raw, exposed emotion of Jairus and his wife. And when he walks into the house, there's the noise of the mourners, weeping and wailing, hoping that the noise will drown out the emotion. And in verse 40, Jesus drove them out. It's the same word used in John two fifteen, where he drove out the money changers and then it says, and he entered in at the end of verse 40 where the damsel is lying. Picture that. Picture a 12-year-old girl's bedroom. All the dollies and the frillies and the 12-year-old girl's bedroom type things. And they close the door. It is now silent. The mourners have been silenced. And in that room you've got Jairus, his wife, Peter, James, John in a little girl's bedroom. And all you can hear is the sobbing of Jairus and his wife. And he goes across to that bed and with great affection and with great compassion He takes the small, slender hand of a 12-year-old girl. Everything was in that hand. Her whole future, her whole life ahead of her, hopefully as a woman, as a wife, as a mother. And that hand that held so much promise is now cold, limp, lifeless. And he says, my daughter, I say unto you, arise. A lot of them would have been looking at the daughter. And in an instant, a tremor goes through her unconscious body. Her heart starts to beat. Her eyelids flicker. They open. She smiles, pushes the bedclothes off, stands up, and walks across to her parents. Look at the compassion of the Lord. He has has composed one of his greatest miracles, and yet he says at the end of verse 43, Get us something to eat. Why on earth would you tell such small detail when he's just performed a resurrection? Brothers and sisters, the Lord is emphasizing again his compassion and his tenderness. He is aware of the most basic need, brothers and sisters. He knows what you're feeling and he knows what you need. Picture it from the girl's perspective. She's 12, but 12-year-old 12 girls know quite a lot. She knew that it was serious for some time. She could tell that. She could tell that by her mum and dad, just the way they looked at each other, so worried. When she was asleep, or when they thought she was asleep, they'd have their whispered conferences. Do you think she will pull through? And unable to answer that. The concerned prayers. And then, on the last day of her life, there's this helpless, petrified, 12-year-old little girl who is going to slide into the darkness of death. And that would have been absolutely petrifying for this little girl. And I have no doubt whatsoever that as she was sliding into death, into unconsciousness, there's no doubt whatsoever mum was holding her hands and only minutes before she says to Jairus, Jairus, go and get Jesus right now. And now she comes out of the darkness of death into light. I guess my hand's being held just like it was when I slid into death. But it's it's not mum. It's the great healer in our synagogue. And she walks across to her mother and father and in verse 42, there's the, almost the understatement of scripture. She is astonished with great astonishment. They are amazed out of their minds with complete and utter amazement. And we are amazed, brothers and sisters, by this record. And what we are amazed about is the amazing empathy with the Lord. Not just to stand in one person's shoes, but to stand in a whole lot of people's shoes at the very one time. At the very one time, he knew exactly what Jairus was feeling. He has enough time to deal with what the woman with the issue was going through and deal with her. But in particular, the way in which the Lord in this record puts himself into Jairus's shoes. Brothers and sisters, what the record is saying is when he comes into the house, he is Jairus. He didn't have to put his arm around Jairus and say, I think I can feel what you're going through. He said, I am going through what you're going through because I am empathising to such an extent that in this story, I have now become Jairus and the proof of that is I am now the owner of the house and therefore I can kick the mourners out of of my house, fake people who turn from mourning to laughter. And then when he goes into his daughter's bedroom, he feels the grief as if his daughter has died. But brothers and sisters, see what the record is saying, that when he holds her hand, he becomes the mother. Because just before this little girl died, I've got no doubt whatsoever, who would have held the hand, not dad, but mum. And now he feels what the mother feels. And he says what every father and mother would desperately want to say to a dead daughter. My daughter, arise. And the Greek is Talitha, a fresh new girl. And the Lord says, I am both father and mother. And I have brought a new daughter into the world. Brothers and sisters, we've got a high priest. And do you know what? Paul uses this expression. He says, this high priest is not any normal high priest. He's a great one. Because he can be touched with the feeling of our infirmity brothers and sisters as we try and deal with other people, try and know what they are thinking and particularly try and get in touch with what they're feeling, then we'll be far more effective in comforting and helping our brethren and sisters on the way to the kingdom. We want to have a look at John 11. I thought we're running out of time. We've got plenty of time. I can relax. John 11. In verse 1 to 3, the Lord Jesus Christ is on the other side of the Jordan River. John the Baptist has been dead for, for quite some time. and I believe this is the first opportunity he has to mourn the death of John the Baptist. It's the first opportunity he has to get away. And then in John 11 verse 1 to 3, a messenger comes. The one you love, Lazarus, is really, really sick. Lord, come right now or do something immediately because if you don't, he'll die. And it was incredibly difficult for the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 6 to stay another two days knowing that Lazarus would die. And eventually after two days he makes his way to where Lazarus lived. He would go to Lazarus and he knew by healing Lazarus he would set in motion a chain of events that would lead to the crucifixion. And so therefore what the Lord does is he goes and helps his friends when he knows that he would die for his friends. And when the Lord finally gets there, the first one who comes to the Lord is Martha. Verse 20. As soon as she heard the Lord was coming, went and met him. She was used to activity. And out comes the question that had been on her mind since the messenger left in verse 21. Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, whatsoever you will ask of God, God will give it to you. What did she think Jesus would give her? I don't think she believed that Lazarus would be resurrected then and now. Because she says in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day, what is she hoping the Lord can give her? What she was hoping the Lord would be able to give her is empathy, sympathy and compassion. So therefore it might take away a little of the sorrow that absolutely overwhelms her. In verse 28, when she had so said, she went way and called Mary her sister. There's this protective care of Mary. The Master is come and calleth for thee. And as soon as Mary heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. She is greatly relieved. The Lord is here. And when she saw Jesus in verse 32, all this pent-up emotion comes out and she collapses at the Lord's feet and repeats the statement of Martha. She's more demonstrative than Martha. This is the question that was repeated often. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Brothers and sisters the Lord knew full well there was not a shadow of a doubt that he would raise Lazarus. He'd already approached his father in prayer. And yet in verse 35, get a clear picture of this. Our Lord wept. You look into the eyes of the loving Lord and those eyes are brimming With tears. Why? Why did the Lord cry? Brothers and sisters, when someone is heartbroken, quite often it's better to say nothing. Quite often. A person will be that heartbroken. The only comfort they receive is when someone weeps with those that weep. And the Lord wept because he knew what a rotten enemy death was. And he wept because he knew that there are going to be continual tears until death is swallowed up in victory. And he wept because this scene is going to be repeated so many times over the next 2,000 years and you can be assured at a funeral where a brother of the Lord has died or a sister of the Lord has died, you can be guaranteed. I cannot give you the answer of why that has happened. I cannot give you the answer of why there is that suffering but what I can tell you is in heaven our Lord his eyes are brimming with tears and he is weeping with you. you. The Lord groans in spirit. It was a groan that came from deep within and he is agitated. It's the same word used in the garden of Gethsemane. And that is how he felt And it came out in verse 35 in strong emotion. And they get to verse 36 and 37 where Lazarus was buried. The Jews, it always is in the sense of those hypocritical legalistic Jews. That's the way it's used in John's record. They say how he loved him. Others say, oh, he couldn't care. He can heal everyone else. He is a man he loves and he refuses to heal him. And again, verse 38, the Lord groans in spirit. He was really hurt by what they said in verse 37 and it gave him a little taste of what would happen. These men would be at the foot of the cross and again what these men said would eventually kill him. He didn't die from the crucifixion. died of a broken heart and what broke his heart what these people said not about him but about his Lord and he gets to where Lazarus lay and in verse 39 he says take away the stone and he gave that command knowing that it would horrify everyone in particular Mary and Martha. They felt the Lord wanted the tomb open on a whim of mere curiosity and Martha is very, very forthright. Why should I go through that harrowing experience? Because I know when that tomb is open, there will be a horrific smell and I will realise that's my decaying brother. And Jesus said, I've told you these things so that you wouldest believe. Martha, your faith is wavering. Can you see the Lord is compassionate in a deep tragedy? Yet at the same time, he's trying to get people ready for the kingdom and they take away the stone. There is a short prayer for the benefit of those who are there. He'd already taken this issue to God in prayer and so he thanks God for the prayer that you have already heard. He's already made this petition and God has already agreed that yes, I will cause Lazarus to be resurrected. They're all standing there. What's going to happen? And then the Lord cries in a mega voice. He screams out, Lazarus, come forth. this man stumbling along wrapped in the linen wrappings of the dead and the people just stare, they're rooted to the spot they're so amazed, no one goes to help him and again here's the care of the Lord in verse 44 loose him and let him go brothers and sisters none of us can read people like the Lord did. But surely, all of us must endeavour to understand what people are thinking and in particular, try and understand what they are feeling. Do what the Lord did. Always try to be in their shoes before you say or do anything. And in all situations, Try and help, not hinder people as they make their way to the kingdom. You know, it's the same Lord who in Revelation chapter 5 and at verse 4 and 5 says to John, Stop crying. The root the son of David hath prevailed over sin and death. I've finally got a cure to weeping because I've prevailed over sin and death and so therefore, tears will be no more. I want to conclude in Revelation 21. We've been, I think you've been considering Revelation 21 in Mark's class, is that right? Basically, Revelation is an incredibly vivid play. It is that vivid, it's as if the whole thing is coming to life before you. That's what the Apostle John and the Lord Jesus Christ sees in Revelation it's as though they are actually there. They are seeing the history from AD 96 right through till the end of the millennium. They are seeing it as if they are actually there but more importantly, they are hearing it as if they are actually there. And there's one thing John notices as the play continues, this very vivid vision as if he is there from AD 96 until the end of the millennium. John's hearing something All the way through. What's the one thing he can hear the whole way through? What's the answer to that? In every age he's hearing this. When he sees a very vivid picture of the faithful, he's hearing them doing something. What is it? Exactly. For the next 3,000 years, as is depicted in this very real vision, he's hearing people crying and weeping. He sees a vision of a cruel Roman Catholic power oppressing the brethren for hundreds of years and those brethren are weeping and crying. He talks about the saints who have come out of great pressure and the brethren and the sisters are crying. They are filled with tears. And when John finally gets to Revelation 21 at the end of the millennium, he notices a huge difference with what he hears. Finally he's seen this play, this very vivid play, and finally, hey, the crying has stopped. And the Apostle John and the Lord Jesus Christ cannot believe the difference when finally we've got to the stage where people have stopped crying. And the Lord who wept at the funeral of Lazarus is so excited when he sees verse 4. And God, God, will wipe away all tears from their eyes. It's the imagery of a funeral. Brothers and sisters, I think all of us have been to a funeral. And all of us have seen someone who is absolutely heartbroken. And what do you want to do? All of us, when we see someone who is heartbroken, cannot but help to go and hug them. But verse 4 goes even further. Verse 4 talks about someone who is heartbroken and you wipe away their tears. You don't dare do this to anyone at a funeral. It's only someone who you are really close to you wipe away the tears of your husband, of your wife or your child. And the picture that we have here is us at the judgment seat. And when the Lord says to us, your time of tears and sorrow and suffering is over, he's desperate to immortalize us and he is desperate to comfort us particularly someone who has suffered a tragedy, who've lost a close family member, because it feels as though someone has ripped half of your heart out. And it hurts, it hurts real bad. And here we have the guarantee of our Lord. I guarantee you the hurt for the very first time since the tragedy, will totally go. And the full sense of wiping away tears is not just to wipe away tears, but the Lord hates the thing that has caused the tears and he wants to obliterate, to totally erase absolutely all tears and he knows the only way he'll be able to do that is to make you immortal. Immortal. And it won't just be you, it will be millions and millions of people who will be immortalised in an instant and there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying and no more pain. And that's what the Lord tried to do so often in his ministry. The Lord was desperate to comfort Jairus and his wife. He was desperate to comfort the widow of Nain. He was desperate to comfort his dear friends, Martha and Mary. But we've now got something added to the picture of the Lord wanting to wipe away our tears. John 11 has added something special. And at the judgment seat, don't turn don't turn don't turn at the judgment seat, the Lord is desperate to comfort you. He wants to put his arm around you and tell you that he understood the pain that you went through. And it is a beautiful figure where the Lord very gently wipes away the tears from your eyes. And you look up into the eyes of the Lord and you realise through that whole time he has been crying with you.